This is God and Autobiography, the podcast, a dramatic adaptation and continuing discussion of the book, God and Autobiography as Told to a Philosopher, by Jerry L. Martin. He was a lifelong agnostic, but one day he had an occasion to pray. To his vast surprise, God answered in words. Being a philosopher, he had a lot of questions, and God had a lot to tell him. Episode 66 Welcome to God and Autobiography, the podcast. This is Episode 66, and I'm Scott Langdon. This week, we continue with our series, Where Two Philosophers Wrestle with God, and bring you part two of the third conversation between Dr. Richard Oxenberg and Dr. Jerry L. Martin. Here, Richard and Jerry focus their conversation on what is at the core of God's intention for a new revelation in this new age. If you have any questions or comments about this or any other episode, please email us at questions at godandautobiography.com. I hope you enjoy the episode. We begin with Richard speaking first. Uh, you know, when, as I was thinking about, well, what's going on in this, in this book? What is at the core of the revelation? I, I came up with three things. Okay. And the, which seem all to relate to one another. Um, one is the notion of God as fully participatory in, uh, in the creation, right? Yes. God is standing out somewhere, just sort of observing it all, unaffected by what's going on, right? You know, if you get anything else about me, get this. I am suffering God, right? I'm what God? A suffering God. Oh, it's a suffering God, yes. Yes, that's almost the essential truth in the, you know, statement in the whole book, that we when we suffer, God suffers, or when God just looks and we're going the wrong way. You know, it's like a parent, their kid becomes a drug drug dealer or something. The parent suffers uh, so that God suffers in these many ways when tragedy strikes us or when we go wrong. And um, so God, I mean, that's a way in which God's destiny, you might say, does depend on our action. God can't be felicitous unless yeah. we're, we're doing well and living well. Right. And also I got it that it's the other way, too. In other words, God, God suffers for us in some sense empathically, yes. right, as a mother suffers for a child. But in a sense, we suffer because God suffers. In other words, the disintegrating aspects of God are invested in our reality that we have to wrestle with that 
because that stuff is part of the reality of the God that we are all part of. We're all <laughs> enmeshed so, in. It's God's yeah. suffering. Our suffering is God's suffering, and God's suffering is our suffering. Yeah, it could, it could be a downward spiral. <laughs> we're trying. We're working it together. Yes, I hadn't thought of, of flipping it that way. That that implication, but that's um, right. So that's what I would think of as the participatory nature of God. That the book is, makes a big point of that. Yes. Right? Yes, God that's crucial. Engaged. God is not this simply this timeless entity. We'll maybe sometime in the future we'll talk about time. <laughs> right. Interesting too, but. Um, I guess the second thing that I was thinking of as I was reading through it was the notion of, once again, coming to a new understanding of the religions of the world, of the world religions. Uh, On the one hand, it's not an exclusivist understanding with one religion standing up and saying, this is the one and only truth. On the other hand, it's not a dismissive understanding. Right. In which we say that since one of them can't be the truth, therefore none of them have any truth. Yeah, no, it's, it's not that at all. Right. It's a new conception of the religions as being truly divinely inspired and being paths toward the divine. Yes. Uh, and each of them having a place to play and a role to play yes. in human spirituality. And I guess the, the last thing that seems- has a challenge for an individual is to find uh, which of those religious paths or some other path even, it might be philosophical or Jungian psychology or something for a given individual, find, find out which path is the divine most accessible to that individual. And it might be the religion they were born into, but it might not. They might be called to a different religion. Or, as I say, to one of these uh, alternative paths, uh, to be philosophical or to be some, you know, a, a kind of inspired poet or, or, or just go help people, you know, give a life of service without thinking a lot about a theological dimension or anything like that, but just be a giving person. It might be any number of things. The challenge for the individual is to figure out, well, what does God want me to do? And we figure it out in part from our side by, well, what do I personally find? You know, where do I find God? Uh, Do I find it here or there? And uh, I've had experiences when I was going through this, when I was sort of hypersensitive spiritually, of going into, uh, in this case, it was a synagogue, the one I'm thinking, and feeling the divine palpable, almost as if I walked into a wall, (laughs) you know, and just the divine. And I had an opposite experience in a kind of downtown church of some sort. And I went in and just started, you know, I was curious in this phase. I knew nothing about religion until God talked to me and I started paying attention. I'm looking at the walls, you know, what, what do the posters say and, you know, what's going on here? And suddenly felt I was suffocating. There was no oxygen in this room. I literally raced out of the room hmm. back to the street. Uh, so anyway, those are just personal reactions, but you can find yourself. Uh, I I don't report in the book. It's, well, I gave a talk subsequent to the book to the Wan Institute for Buddhist Studies. And in fact, I delayed the invitation for a while because I thought, well, Buddhists don't even believe in God. Isn't this going to seem very 
wrong to them, very low-level spirituality to them, too literalistic and so forth. But the person inviting me, who had heard me give a talk at, at AAR, persisted. And so, okay, I went in. In fact, we had a, a good discussion. But uh, one uh, story that came out of that was they just hired a Jewish psychologist, a woman who was a psychologist. She was Jewish. And I wonder, how do you end up with the Wan Buddhist? Wan Buddhism is a 20th century Japanese kind of sort of inspired inspirations to people who founded this particular branch. Well, she was downtown Philadelphia. It started raining and she ran into, there's this building she runs in to get out of the rain. It's the Wan Institute for Buddhist Spirituality. And it just kind of comes upon her. This is where I belong. Hmm. And uh, I've come to think, well, you need to pay attention to moments like that. You could think, oh, well, that's silly. You know, it's just a place out of the rain. On the other hand, you kind of learn more if you sort of trust it. And yeah. she trusted it and went so far as end up, to end up working with them. <laughs> this is, you know, her, her career. So anyway, the, these uh, it's not just there are those religions each doing their own thing. We as individuals have a relationship to those religious doors we can open or not open or or happen in our lives to find open sort of waiting for us. Yeah, and, and my own sense in, in dealing in, in this idea of the different religions um, uh, being both available as different religions, but also respecting coming to respect one another, not simply in a political sense, no, where it's okay for people to believe what I don't believe, but respecting one another as having revelatory significant yes. content. Yes, that, and that, therefore being able to learn from one another if we so choose. Yeah. I don't find here any mandate of people that they have to go study all the religions. It's perfectly fine just to do your thing, but right. just be aware that it's not the only divine uh, avenue. Right. I get the sense that as the religions adopt that view of themselves, in a sense, the hard edges of the religion begin to soften. Yes. And it's not simply that they uh, now we have opportunities for individuals to hop from one religion to another, but the religions themselves will modify their understanding of, them, of themselves, right? Recognizing that um, they have a particular focus, um, but their particular focus is one focus within a, of a much greater whole. And yes. that will change their understanding of the meaning of that focus as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and as long as they are able to keep their focus, there's nothing against their bringing right into their uh, midst the other points of view. They can have, you know, uh, uh, say a Christian congregation, let them say the Methodist can bring in somebody to talk about Gandhi's spirituality, for example, or about Buddhism. Right. And, and so on. There's no reason we have to, we can study, we can all read the poetry of Rumi. Yes. And, uh, and yet go back then to our Methodist worship, because yes. that's mainly what we're doing. Yes. In, in the yeah, Methodist church. So it's a kind of Methodist church without walls. You <laughs> I'm might just say. listening to a, actually a YouTube uh, discussion with Matthew Fox, the Christian theologian who was talking about how he got into some trouble with his Dominican order 
by starting a little school or movement in which he invited all these people from these different religions <laughs> right, to right. come and uh, participate and, uh, and enlighten everyone. I guess the third point that came to me as I was looking at this, which is related to everything we've just discussed, yes, is the notion of, I suppose, what we might think of, or what I began to think of it, the integrative thrust of God, right? That we live in this world of enormous diversity, and um, it's almost amazing that reality is capable of such diversity. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, and yet all that diversity somehow emerges from a unity and can harmonize with itself in almost an infinite variety of permutations. Yeah. And the um, pursuit of that harmony is, in a sense, the goal of life in various ways, you know, and there's no, there's no end to that, all those yes. permutations. And somehow, it seems to me, God is saying that it is through the relationship, a harmonious relationship with God, that we are best able to engage in that integrative process, and achieve that kind of harmony. And that's why it's important that we not simply throw all the old religions out because right. of their imperfections, but yeah. that we continue this process of trying to get clearer and clearer about the nature of human religion and spirituality. Yeah, but meanwhile, our job is just to do our thing. It reminds me of the story of the uh, guy who is a tuba player in uh, an orchestra, symphony orchestra, and one time he gets sick. They're doing, I don't know, Aida or something. And he goes, so since he's sick, he just goes out and sits in the audience and listens to the music, says to his friend afterwards, it's ama it was amazing. You know, the part that's going, um, 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 it's also going, ya, da, 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 da. you know, the whole of Aida is there. He just never had any idea. Nevertheless, he's still a tuba player. I mean, that's mm -hmm. his job, is to go back and play the tuba. If he right. does his job, then right. we have Aida. <laughs> you know? right. And right. so uh, the, uh, the musical metaphors seem to come up often in the book because these uh, uh, harmony is a powerful metaphor itself, and, it's, uh, uh, and it allows one to appreciate the full diversity. The particulars all have to stay there. Yes, has to do its umpa umpa umpa, and meanwhile, all these other instruments are doing their particular thing, and yet it does make a meaningful whole. Yes, and, and this is then related to a discussion that's also in the book, and maybe we'll pursue this a little bit more fully in another session. Yeah, uh, the ego, right, which is separative. Yes. Right, our sense of being our ego is what separates us from everything else, right? And that's necessary. But the danger then 
is that we can become so wrapped up in reality as presented uh, to us by the ego that the tuba player comes to think that the tuba <laughs> that's the world. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know a tuba player, and it right. comes close to and, that. The um, really good part hey, is the tuba. You know, tuba, that's what's really important <laughs> here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and the others could quiet it down. For the sake of making that tuba sound. <laughs> yes, right? yes. And um, that's the danger, right? Yeah, I, I'm, when I pray about ego, you know, what's wrong with ego, I'm told, you know, there's a kind of good ego and a bad ego, or good sense and a bad sense. And the good sense is, well, you need an ego. That's part of your ar- your engine and your armor you right. might say, for dealing with the difficult world. Uh, you know, we often talk about you need self-esteem and, you know, this kind of thing, a firm sense of your own purpose, uh, and to be committed to that. Uh, the bad sense, and you use the word, uh, Richard, separatives, you know, when it's separativeness uh, and uh, rebellion, in effect, refusing. It's as if the tuba player said, well, I'm not going to pay attention to the script because I could just make the tuba louder and more dominant and do all kinds of stuff <laughs> that would drown all the others out. <laughs> you know, well, it's that ego that's... Uh, that's um, completely self-preoccupied, doesn't see itself as part of a whole of any kind, part of interpersonal relations or anything else. That kind yeah. of ego is uh, uh, what we have to to avoid. Yeah. yeah. I found another good quote here that expresses yeah. that from yes. page 148, section 28 of the book. Um, again, at God speaking, the material world, the senses, ego, and so forth, is deceptively powerful. It's easy for it to seem like the only thing that matters, in fact, like the only thing that is really real. Our ego and our, right? And the whole, one of the big points of spirituality is to get us beyond that, to recognize our connection with what stands beyond the ego without doing away with the ego. Right. Right. Um, but the and, ego has, a, like the tuba, has a particular role. Right. To help us navigate the world, give us some defenses against the slings and arrows that might be showered upon us, um, and to help us stand for what we're standing for or pursue our projects with some degree of single-mindedness. But uh, uh, it's limited. And the other part of that quote is uh, the, the natural world seems so very real, and one's own physiology, one's own body, one's own bodily desires, and the worldly goods that we're surrounded with, as well as the worldly uh, dangers, it's very easy to think that's the the total level of reality. Right. It's a lot of reality. You know, the uh, what God told me, it always cuts in between two points of view, because there are people who want to say, well, the world is something like an illusion. And I know I'm told at one point, if it's a mirage, it's a mirage you can drink water from. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's a completely real right. Uh, right. thing, right. However, right. however you label it metaphysically. Right. Uh, in this context, uh, the book goes into a discussion of sacrifice, because yes. sacrifice and surrender are really what the ego needs to do in order to, yeah. in order to relax Yes, yes. Intensive self-involvement, yes. right? And through that, it can then enter into a relationship to what stands beyond itself. Yes. yes Which is really, I suppose, the meaning of love. 
in some. Yes, love some, always yeah. involves like an element of surrender. Yeah, not just yeah. pushing the other person around or trying to use them for your own desires, emotional needs, physical lust, whatever. But uh, to surrender a lot of that uh, to the good of the other and to the, so I say, the preciousness of the other. And our relation to God has those things too. And our relation to other high ideals, things people fight and die for, things people sacrifice, you know, uh, for. I know a guy who takes food to the people in India and just hates India <laughs> and hates doing this, the, mos the mosquitoes and the, you know, all the horrors, and even the encounter with often wretched conditions uh, that's a bit hard to bear. But he feels called to do this. And so he surrenders to that very uncomfortable call. And yeah. So that's a lot of life. And, uh, and it seems to be uh, essential to our relation to God that you know, that's why, as you know, I always pray, thy will be done. That's, that's kind of the essential prayer. Right. And, and most people pray, give me this, give me that. It's like, my will be done. God, my will be done. But uh, to the extent you're doing that, uh, you're not relating to God as divine being at all, but as a kind of uh, uh, Santa Claus or a fairy godmother or something. Right. And I suppose God's will, as it gets expressed in the book, is ultimately the will, once again, I call it integrative, but, you know, I suppose that ultimately means to create love, to create love out of, to recognize the forces of disintegration and then deal with them in such a way as to bring harmony and integration in the vast variety of ways that we can do it in the world. Maybe uh, with this discussion of God's will, it, that's a good time to stop this particular session. Sounds you know, right. What we were planning on doing for our next one. Yes. To talk a little bit about the nature of God as revealed in the book. Yes. And, uh, look forward to that discussion. That sounds right, Richard. Th thank you for this discussion. Yeah. And I'll look thank forward you. to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening to God and Autobiography, the podcast. Subscribe for free today wherever you listen to your podcasts and hear a new episode every week. You can hear the complete dramatic adaptation of God and Autobiography as Told to a Philosopher by Jerry L. Martin by beginning with episode one of our podcast and listening through its conclusion with episode 44. You can read the original true story in the book from which this podcast is adapted, God and Autobiography as Told to a Philosopher, available now at Amazon.com and always at GodandAutobiography.com. Pick up your own copy today. If you have any questions about this or any other episode, please email us at questions at GodandAutobiography.com and experience the world from God's perspective, as it was told to a philosopher. This is Scott Langdon. I'll see you next time.